Okay, very good. Take your Bibles, if you have them this morning, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. It'll be a little while before we get to Ephesians, but you can be ready there. We'll we'll, uh, have a few other things to say first. We've spent the past three weeks in this family series that we're in uh, addressing parents, leaning on the example of God as Father to establish the principles and the methods by which we operate as parents, uh, we would say as fathers, but, but, but more than just as fathers, as father and mother, as parents within the home, learning important lessons about ourselves as God's children along the way, but also in the manner in which God deals with us as children, how we ought to deal with our own children, our physical children. And and this week we come to our instruction to those children. And and, and as we did with parents, uh, where we leaned upon the biblical design of God as Father in order to help us understand the concepts in play, so too with children today, we are going to lean on God's design, but we're going to do so in in somewhat of of a different way. Recall four weeks ago, in our first message in this series, we contemplated design. Understanding that family is rooted in design. And when at once we see God's design for society through the family, then we are on a firm footing to be able to orient ourselves properly to the teachings that it gives us. God has a design. Family is a part of that design. When family meets the design expectations of God, then family is doing what it's supposed to do. When society allows the family to do what it's supposed to do, then society is benefited and everything is working the way God designed it to work. And this same idea is true for almost any concept that we find in the Bible as it relates to practical life or society. Society, family, government, church, marriage, friendships, employment, entertainment, amusement, in all of these things, really anything else you can think of as well, we begin with a foundation of God's design and then we build upon that foundation principles in our lives fundamentally consistent with this design. And in doing so, we have confidence that we're on firm footing biblically because we're aligning with God's design, and thus we have confidence in the results. That if I'm doing it God's way, I expect to get God's results. And of course, there's always things that go wrong. There's always uh, wild cards that, that, that are in the mix. We, we live in a world that is constantly changing, and things are, are changing. But, but as a general rule, when we align with God's design, we get God's results. And the principle in play, when we speak to children... The design principle in play, in play as I speak to our, our children this morning... And we're talking in some senses or in some context to children that are still directly under their parents' authority, but we also recognize that everyone in here has parents, and and I'll be addressing all of you as well. But the fundamental principle in play is the principle of authority, God's design in authority. The principle of authority is very important in God's word. And the idea behind this principle is that God has ordained various positions and institutions in the world, and with that ordained responsibility comes ordained accountability. Yes, and we've talked about that before. That's not for today, but it also comes with ordained authority. I mentioned already in that first message I preached about a month ago on design 
In that message, we spoke of the interplay between three primary institutions which make up society. And I gave you this Venn diagram, and I've used it before. I used it in the First Timothy series, and you've seen it. And, and, and we're just going to kind of briefly breeze past it today as we continue in the text. We speak, however, of those three pillars of society, of government, of family, and of church, each one having been given by God a distinct, though inter uh, excuse me, overlapping authority over certain areas of life. But what we really didn't focus on, we spoke of the responsibility and the accountability and those things just briefly, but what we didn't really focus on is that with each area of responsibility, there also comes a degree of authority that God has given to that institution so that when a person within a God-ordained role exercises his authority within that role, he does so as an extension of God's authority, that government, family, church, that these all operate within the role that God has given them as an extension of God's authority, they are earthly representatives of God's authority. And of course, this applies to numerous social relationships. It applies in the relationship here, as we see in government, civil government between government and citizens. We read about this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Simply put, Christian, God has ordained Government. That doesn't mean that every government structure is in line with the word of God. That doesn't mean that every man in government is at all a godly man or is someone that God would be pleased with. But it does mean that God has designed government, that God has ordained government. And so as the government accomplishes its God-given role, and we'll come back to that a little bit later in the sermon as we're talking about parents and children, and, and, and there will be other contexts where we'll, we'll talk about some of the caveats and uniquenesses of any authority role and, and what happens when they fail at their role. But as the government accomplishes its God-given role, the government has the right to our submission. And, and the call for believers to identify this design and to embrace this design is very powerfully expressed in the scriptures. So that we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness but as the servants of God. Peter exhorts the Christian church to be both sensitive to the design of God and civil government and deliberate in our submission unto the same. Now, our message is not on civil government today, so, so to that end, there will be some whom I will leave with 
You might say more questions than answers, perhaps, as it relates to the nitty-gritty of this concept. As with any earthly authority, there are caveats and limitations uh, to these ideas of alignment, of submission, and such. These principles are able to be um, abused and manipulated. Anybody who knows uh, their history can understand how uh, there was a time where uh, the kings and the papacy were using this idea of of, of submission, institutional submission to government, uh, as a means by which through, through, through a concept called the divine right of kings as a means by which to force the people into submission in an anti-biblical way and, and an unbiblical way, and we understand that. However, the exceptions never disprove the rule. The fact that this has been abused over time through concepts such as the divine right of kings does not intrinsically mean that what the Bible says is, is, is false or, or that, or that we, we cannot regard God's design, that God has ordained government and that as a general rule, God expects that his people would submit themselves to the government in play. So please don't allow your unresolved questions on that topic to distract you from my objective in, in presenting this concept. We're, we're on a journey, we're headed in a direction, and the first checkpoint along this journey is for us to see that God has ordained this thing for civil government. That, that, that civil government is ordained of God, and because it's ordained of God, it has responsibility, accountability, it also has authority, and it is incumbent upon us, as those who see what the scriptures tell us, the, the government in, in Peter's day was not a good government, was not a friendly government to, to the church of Jesus Christ, uh, was somewhat passive as it related to the persecution that the church was receiving and would eventually, throughout the years, become an active participator in said persecution. And yet Peter is calling the people to submit to put to silence the ignorance of foolish men who are saying that because we serve the kingdom of God, that means we reject the kingdom of man. To put to silence the foolish men that say that we are natural revolutionaries because we serve a higher king. And this has never been what Christ has ordained for his church. But what I want you to see is that God has established an institution called civil government, that this institution has been given authority over the affairs of nations as it relates to the punishment of evil and the proliferation of the common good. And God has likewise ordained that those who are under the authority of civil government recognize that authority and recognize that it is not just held by men through force or through power, but it is held by men as an extension of God's design. And to that end, God expects his people to be subject unto those higher powers, not for the sake of the people involved, not because they respect the people involved or because the people are worthy, but for the sake of design and, as we see here in First Peter, also for the sake of testimony. So we see this. This is the design in the civil government. We also see this in the context of commerce or of industry. As a matter of fact, just a few verses later in 1 Peter 2, if we continue along that trail in verses 18 and 19, the Bible says this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience sake toward God excuse me, for conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully, just as God has designed the citizen to submit to his government, so too God has designed the servant to submit to his master. Now, within the scope of modern society, we would most closely associate this servant-master relationship with the idea of employee-employer. 
Commerce and industry operate upon the principles of authority, just as civil society, civil government, operates upon the principles of, of authority. That there is a God-ordained structure in the idea of someone who is employing others, of an employer and employees, of master-servant. And of course, this has any number of hierarchies throughout history, going all the way from chattel slavery up to the kind of idea that we have today with employers' rights and, and unions and all all of that, all of that falls within the idea here of authority. And notice that Peter calls those under this authority to submit, and not only to those masters who are good and who are gentle, but also to those masters who are froward, that word in our King James meaning crooked or perverse. And there really is no ambiguity in the text as to what Peter means by this. As he says in the next verse, that the man who endures grief and suffers wrongfully for conscience toward God receives praise of God. The call is not just submission to the good guys. The call is if you are under an authority structure and you have been placed under said authority, even if that authority is not good to you, even if that authority is not treating you right, that does not give you the right to disregard that authority because it is designed. It is designed by God. This is an opportunity to exercise Christian virtue, even when exercising Christian virtue isn't easy. And the reason why we understand this to be true is because by submitting yourself to your earthly master, your employer, even a bad master, a bad employer, a bad boss, bad supervisor, whatever it might be, you are submitting to the principle of design that God has established indelibly in the created order. And so you are actually showing your submission to God even when your determined submission comes at the cost of your personal rights. Maybe even your personal wellness. So in this, we are building up a principle. Again, I'm not preaching on the employee-employer relationship. That's for another day, another time. But we're building a principle of design. God has a design. It is incumbent upon us to identify that design and to align with it. The design that we're thinking of today is the design of authority. That civil government, there is authority. We don't always like what civil government does, but we are called to align with their authority. We don't always like what our boss does, but we are called to align with their authority. It's about God and it's about authority. It's not about you and it's not about your boss. We are formulating an understanding of the fact that God has designed into society institutions and God expects those who fear him to make a conscious decision to submit themselves to these authorities as the natural extension of their determination to submit themselves to God. So that our submission to our authorities is not actually about our authorities at all. Not even really about the institutions that those authorities represent. Well, you honor the president. You're not really honoring the man. You're honoring the institution. Okay, fine. That's nice and well. But actually, as Christians, it's not even about the institution of the presidency. What we are actually doing is honoring our personal relationship with God himself. Our determination to submit to God 
And any reflection upon the institution of the presidency or the man itself is, is, is no, no, no greater than the fact that we are honoring the God who we know designed authority and the man who happens to be in that place of authority over me. So we continue down the path of social institutions. We've talked about government. We've talked about employee-employer. The same concept is reflected in the church, although in a slightly different way. I preached through Hebrews not too long ago in, sun, uh, in a, our Sunday evening series. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Now, within this context, it is distinctly speaking of elders in the church who have been ordained unto leadership and to teaching. Uh, you don't really get that in the snippet of all of the context that I have preached here. This one is the most jumping into context that I have. I encourage you to go back and listen to my Hebrews 13 teaching if you would really like to dig into this or, of course, go to the passage and uh, prove for yourself whether or not you believe that this is speaking of elders in the church, but that's the way I take it. And as with all ordained authority, authority, there's a certain way that God has ordained this authority to lead. In the case of elders in the church, it's a little bit different from other elements of authority. First Peter chapter 5 says explicitly that the elders of the church are, in, are called to lead as in, in samples or examples to the flock, not as lords over God's heritage. So I do not lead you by, by, by poking you with a stick. I do not lead you as a dictator. I lead you by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. I lead by example. And when there is a person in the church who is showing an example that is worth leading, the church identifies that and says, this is a man who is worthy of us following. And they elevate that man to a position and they say, we, we see in you an, affir an affirmation of ministry and of leadership that we want to be able to follow. And they elevate him to a position of said leadership. And then he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So it's a little bit different from the other elements of authority, the, uh, the, the authority in the church. Yet the call, nevertheless, is to identify that ordained person of spiritual authority and to submit to him as an extension of God's design within the institution. So that submission to an elder in the church is not submission to the man, not even submission to the institution, but to the God who has ordained it to be so. And as we've thought of civil government and we've thought of uh, employee, employer, and we've thought of the church, we find that this principle carries over to the home as well. First, of course, with husband and wife, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Notice the statement of design here. The husband is the head of the wife. This is a design principle. That the wife willingly align herself with the vision of her husband for life and dedicate herself to the success of her husband's vision and goals through attitudes and actions, that is the idea of submission. This is not about his capabilities. Submission is not about his capabilities. Submission is not about his trustworthiness. Submission is about God's design has nothing to do with the fact that you are incapable, has nothing to do with the fact that you can't do what he's doing, it has everything to do with the fact that God has designed it to be so. 
So that submission to your husband's wives is not about the degree to which you respect your husband or have confidence in him. Though I hope you can have those things. And if you don't have those things, if your marriage is not in a place where you have that love and that confidence and that respect, come see me. We'll try to get that ironed out. But this is what the Bible says. That God has ordained a position of responsibility, accountability, and authority. And that within the marriage, the husband has that authority. And it is incumbent upon the wife to identify design and to align herself with said design, not for her husband's sake, but for God's sake. So we find a consistent theme throughout the scriptures as it relates to authority. That when God has ordained an authority, as a general principle, again, exceptions don't disprove rules, to submit to that authority is a reflection not of your submission to them or of the institution they represent, but of submission to God. And to rebel against that authority, with obvious exceptions to the principle, to rebel against that authority is to rebel against God. And that brings us this morning to the passage I asked you to turn to in Ephesians chapter 6. The Bible says this in verses 1 through 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Children, just as God has designed and commanded citizens to submit to their civil government and employees to submit to their employers and the church to submit to her elders and wives to submit to their own husbands. This same principle of design compels you to obey and honor your parents, not because you have good parents, not Because your parents are worthy, not because you agree with them, but because you love God. You have identified God's design. You have believed God's promises of rewards. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. And you are determined to show your love for God by aligning with the authority that God has given to you. Notice that we find two commands here toward children. First, children obey your parents in the Lord. Now, this corresponds very well to the command that we've been memorizing this month in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, where the Bible says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, notice the unique clarification that we find here in Ephesians 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And this is contrasted in Colossians chapter 3, 20, verse 20, with children, obey your parents in all things. And these are not contradictory commandments, but they are complementary. Children, you are called to obey your parents in all things, but you are also called to, to this obedience in the Lord. 
Now, this is a slightly different wording and perhaps a slightly different concept than the one we saw in 1 Peter 2 when, when we were considering a submission to civil government. In 1 Peter 2, speaking about submitting to the king or submitting to our government, the phrase was, submit for the Lord's sake. And the idea of for the Lord's sake reflects hierarchies of authority, the thing that we've been talking about the whole time, whereby when I obey my government, I am not doing it because I have a good government or because I respect my government, but rather I'm doing it because I respect my God who has commanded me to obey my government. And when I obey my government, I am obeying God. I am obeying my government for the Lord's sake. The government says, oh, this is a very obedient person. I have their respect or I have their fealty or, or, or maybe I've duped them or whatever. But what's actually happening in your mind is I'm doing what I'm doing because God has told me to and I am, I, I'm obeying God. I'm loving God. I'm serving God. And we would expect a very similar idea to be reflected here as it relates to children and their parents. But there's also another possible idea to this phrase, obey your parents in the Lord. The idea being that children obey their parents to the extent that their parents' commands do not contradict with the commandments of God. And this is a possible meaning here would be fully consistent with the teachings of the Bible as it relates to authority, whether that be civil government or a master in the context of the employee-employer relationship or an elder in the church or a husband or a parent. The line of obedience to our earthly authority is drawn at the point that your earthly authority asks you to do something that contradicts your heavenly authority. If everything that you're doing is for the Lord's sake, then at the point that your earthly authority asks you to do something that you cannot do for the Lord's sake, then you must leave the authority of your earthly authority. You must leave your, your, your obedience to them and stay obedient to your heavenly authority so that you're, you are 100% aligned with your earthly authority as long as your earthly authority is not asking you to contradict your heavenly authority. And if at some point there is a divergence, you follow your heavenly authority and you also accept the consequences that your earthly authority may levy upon you for not following them. So then to obey your parents in all things is the command that in every single thing you obey your parents, but it is still subject to the qualification that what your parents are telling you to do and again, this applies to government and master and elder and husband as well. Submission to authority is still subject to the qualification that what your authority is telling you to do does not stand in contradiction to what God is telling you to do. But child, if what mom and dad is telling you to do is not sinful before the Lord, if it is not contradictory to God's commands, to your heavenly authority, then you are under divine obligation to obey your parents. And when you disobey them, you are disobeying God as well. Now, the next thing to talk about is the point when a child steps outside of their parents' authority in life. Everything that we have been speaking about is rooted in the idea of authority, but we know that not every authority relationship remains constant throughout the extent of our lives. In fact, most change. Governments can change. 
Masters, employers can change. Elders in a church setting can change. Now, parents don't change, but the relationship of a child to his parents will change throughout the years, and particularly at a point when a child steps outside of the umbrella of his parents' protection and enters into his own autonomous adulthood. And he takes his place in society on his own. Now, biblically speaking, the clearest line of when that happens is marriage. In our Genesis series, we spoke about this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. The Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. There comes a point when a man leaves the umbrella of protection that is his father and his mother. He cleaves unto his wife. They establish a new family, an autonomous family unit. And the son, while still a son, is no longer in a parent-child relationship of authority and has instead become the authority in his own home. Now he has a wife whom he leads. Then he will have children, if the Lord uh, chooses for them, whom he will lead and he will become his own, uh, a father. And, and then he has his own children and the cycle begins all over again. This being said, we find even in scriptures themselves, direct teaching, even encouragement in 1 Corinthians, that certain among God's people should not marry. So then what do we do with that? When a child is under his parents' authority, the natural break, societal break in this is when he or she gets married and they step into their autonomous unit. But what about those people who don't get married? where God has not called them to be married. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spends quite a bit of time exhorting the people in the church, if it is at all possible, don't get married and devote yourself to the church and to Christ. So what about them? Are they under their parents' direct authority for the remainder of their life? And, And we don't have a whole lot in Scripture about this idea, but there is a glimmer that we find in the Bible reflected in Paul's teaching of Jewish culture in Galatians 4 that kind of gives us, uh, in in, in a sense, a, a direction or an outlook that we can take about this idea of when is a child released from his parents' authority. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors, notice this, until the time appointed of the father. So within the scope of Jewish culture at the least, a child was under tutors and governors, was under authorities that the father had appointed in his life until the father says, you're done. You have now graduated from heir to inheritor. You are now going to take your place in the family. Take your place in the family business. Take your place in society. You no longer need to have individuals over you telling you what to do. You now have the tools necessary to regulate yourself and to contribute to society. The father decides when his child is ready to take upon himself the privileges and the responsibilities of adulthood. And when he confers that release upon his child, the child is now free from that direct authority relationship. Now, in our culture today, we have laws on the books, and those laws have drawn a line, generally for most things at age 18, a few things age 21. And that's necessary and important. Society must be built on laws. There must be things put in place. They, they are not one size fits all, but, but in a society context, you need to have a kind of a 
You need to draw a line somewhere, right? We do this in the church as well. You all have individual standards for the way that you live your life, but when we come together in a corporate body in order that we can function clearly, we have standards. We have things that we ask and we expect. We have things that we expect for the people that stand behind the pulpit, for the people that play piano. And those expectations are there not because people that don't meet them could not handle it, but because we've got to have a line in order to have organization, in order to have structure, in order to have functionality. And the same is true, right? And the age for most things is at 18. At this age, a person is considered legally an adult and is so empowered to make their own decisions. And while this, again, this direct age is useful and necessary for legal organization and clarity in a society, parents... I encourage you not to think along the line of such simple terms as it relates to your children. We have all known that certain 25-year-old who is no more mature than most 15-year-olds we know. And we all know that certain 15-year-old that is significantly more mature than most 25-year-olds we know. Certain aspects of adulthood are indeed biological. When the body and mind develops into its most mature and strong form. Most of the science today says that that young people, uh, at least men, that men hit that full mind development at about age 26. Uh, Unfortunately, society really knows nothing about the mind, so we can't trust that statistic per se. But, you know, it might bear out. uh, At least we would understand that probably most men do not fully come into their own as far as thinking and, and, and such until their 20s whereas women might develop that a little bit earlier in life. So we see these ideas biologically, mentally, uh, when when people get to their full height, when when men, when their their, uh, uh, shoulders broaden and and they, they become more capable, they hit the prime of their life. But we also understand another important aspect of adulthood is rooted in the choice of the young person to set aside childish things and to take upon himself a mindset of responsibility and accountability. I remember talking to a young lady several years ago. She's someone I met in the jail. She got saved, and she had been in a rehab facility, and I, along with um, another person, went and visited her in this rehab facility, and she had some friends there that day. And she was talking about uh, her life. She must have been 18 or 19 years old. And, and we had been talking about biblical things. And, and then throughout the course of this conversation uh, with her friends, she was showing that she had a license and that she had set up various things that established some things, insurance and whatnot. And, and uh, she, she was on um, you know, state-funded insurance and state-funded this and state-funded that. And at one point she said, I feel like such a grown-up because I have all of these things. And my reply to her was something her friends didn't seem to appreciate, but I looked at her, I said, no, you'll be a grown-up when you're actually paying for them. When you actually take upon yourself the accountability, the responsibility, and the risk, right? That's when you grow up. You grow up when you take responsibility for yourself. And so there's this idea of adulthood, and and quite, quite the way it is in our society today, a lot of that's not happening for some people until their 30s, really. So that we might know some 15-year-olds that are more an adult than some 30-year-olds. Not biologically, per se, but definitely as far as the act of accountability and responsibility. Now, it is our job, parents, to discern when it is our child meets the qualifications of adulthood. Privileges come with responsibilities, and you are under no obligation to give your child a privilege just because he meets a certain age threshold. 
And of course, in our society, you have no power to withhold certain things from your child once they turn 18. And if at that age, your child chooses to strike out on their own, to step outside of the umbrella of your protection, even without your blessing, well, they're legally able to do so and there's nothing you can do to stop them. But biblically, parent, you are under no obligation to confer upon your child any sort of autonomy or authority simply because the calendar has advanced another year. Your child is 16. They're legally able to drive. That doesn't mean they have to drive. If they cannot handle it, if they are not responsible, if they are not able to, according to your reckoning, drive, they don't have to drive just because they're 16. Now, of course, this doesn't necessarily get to go both ways. Maybe there are some 13-year-olds 13 13 in here who are, who, who are in maturity perfectly capable of driving. We can't just throw, the, throw out the book and say, well, he's, he's mature enough, so I'm just going to let him drive, obviously, unless you know, it's, you're on, on your farm or something. But, but as far as legally, we, we have to obey the laws. That's the civil government thing. We've already talked about that. But there is no rule that says your child has to be able to drive because, he, because the calendar ticks and he's 18. I mean, 16, excuse me. So I encourage you, Christian parents, to assume a different mindset, to not get stuck in the rut of ages, and to rather follow a principle of accountability and responsibility. And to the children, may I encourage you? Yep, at age 18, there's nothing your parents can do to stop you. They don't have to help you, but they can't stop you. If you want to go out and do your own thing, that's up to you. But may I encourage you to appreciate this principle in your own lives as well. To submit to your parents in this regard as well. And see your obligation to rest under their authority as continuing until your parents choose to release you from their authority. At which point you become your own person. And free to reject the advice and the exhortations which your, which your parents uh, might give to you or compel in your life. So that once you have been released from their authority, your parent cannot come up anymore and say, do this. And you say, I am biblically obligated to do it. No, you, you are your own autonomous person now. So that the command to obey your parents does have an end point. When you graduate into autonomous adulthood... And this is to be distinguished from the second command here in Ephesians 3. I mean, Ephesians 6. The command to honor your father and mother. Throughout the Bible, we find that this command has no such statute of limitations. Going all the way back to the Ten Commandments, God has established this direct command that children honor their parents. And the idea here is that children show their parents the proper reverence as those who bore you, cared for you, and all the more so as those who God has appointed over you. And I speak this to children of every age in this room, even those whose parents have already passed into eternity. You are still your parent's child. This still applies to you. While there is a time, child, 
where your parents will release you from their authority, there is never a time where you are released from your obligation to do right by them, to speak well of them and not to speak ill of them, to respect them and not to demean them or tear them down, and to care for them in the latter years even better than they cared for you in your early years. This is a child's lifelong obligation and one that comes with this promise that it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long upon the earth. Now, there is disagreement among good Christians about the nature of this promise. Some take this promise to mean that the child who honors his parents will be given by God a long and a healthy life. And if this is the case, if this is the way that you take it, or those that do interpret the promise this way, uh, they would recognize it to be in an all things being equal sort of a scenario. What I mean by that is this. There is many a man who has faced a early death as a martyr for his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pick up a book like Fox's Book of Martyrs or The Martyr's Mirror, and you can read of hundreds of people who in the the early stages of their lives loved the Lord, did what was right, and ended up dying for the cause. I think we can say with relative safety that God did not only allow them to be martyred for him because they did not honor their parents or that every single person who dies at a young age does so because they did not honor their parents and every single person who lives to be uh, later in their life did honor their parents because there's a man like Pol Pot who killed millions who lived into his 70s and I'm pretty sure it's not because he did a really good job of honoring his parents. Maybe. So we have an all things being equal idea there. That if we believe that God will give long life to those who honor their parents in the physical sense, then all things being equal, assuming that he does not get martyred for his faith, assuming these things, all things being equal, God would give him long life. And some people believe it that way. Now, others take this to be more proverbial. The idea being that because you honor your parents, you have a connection to multi-generational wisdom that will help you make wise decisions. So that as you honor the multi-generational wisdom of parents and grandparents who say, hey, don't go play in the street, you are far more likely to live a long and a healthy life because you're not playing where cars are going to hit you and kill you. So that through wisdom, the wisdom of your parents that you honor you will be much more likely to live in prosperity and wellness as you assume that wisdom, as you learn those lessons throughout your days. While pra- and, and, and this idea, while practically solving the problem of the good die young, right, kind of takes away some of the force of the divine promise. But some take it that way. So you have these ways, perhaps other ways as well, that this promise is interpreted. However, As far as I'm concerned, you say, well, pastor, which one is it? I can't tell you. I honestly can't. I don't know. This is one of those, very similar, uh, since we're in our family series, to the idea of train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart therein. People take that verse to mean different things. Is it a promise? Is it a proverb? Is it indelible? How does that work? The good people have have, um, different opinions on what the promise means. But let me tell you why this doesn't trouble me. Why I really am not troubled by not knowing what the promise means. The reason why I'm not troubled by that is because this thing I know, whatever that promise is, I want it. 
I want it. And the wonderful thing is, while the promise is ambiguous, the command of how to receive the promise is not. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart. I don't know what it means that when the child is old, he will not depart. But here's what I do know, unambiguously. The command is to train up the child in the way he should go. And if I do that, I'll receive the promise, whatever it is. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. I don't exactly know what that promise means, but here's the one thing I do know without ambiguity. I know how to get it. Honor my father and mother. And as long as I know how to get it, I don't really care what the promise means. I mean, it'd be interesting to know. I'd like to know, but it really doesn't matter. I won't say I don't care. It doesn't matter. I want the promise. I know I want the promise. Whatever the promise is, I want it. I've got to have it, and I know how to get it. I'm going to honor my father and my mother. Not just father, father and mother. Honor your parents, children, and whatever the force of that promise is, it will be yours. And you want it. So obey. Now, as we wrap things up in the sermon today, I want to draw our minds back to design. We started with design. We talked about these things. Let's draw our minds back to design one more time. And in doing so, two points as we close today. Point number one, children. The first implication of design. Your parents are not a mistake. You might say, sure, pastor, obey your parents, honor your parents, I get it. And there are people sitting all around me in this room who have it easy. Because like we talked about for the last three weeks, their parents, they, they, they were kind, they, were, they had integrity, they loved the Lord, uh, they, they, you could trust their love, you could trust their intentions. They, they grew up with parents who are stable and who are focused and who are godly. But that isn't my parents, pastor. How can you tell me to honor and obey my parents? You have no idea how awful they are. You have no idea how misguided they are. You have no idea how immature they are. You have no idea how selfish they are. And and you're right. I don't. I had godly parents. I come from a goodly heritage. I thank God for that. But I do know this. You did not have a choice over the parents that you have. But you being given the parents that you were given was not God's first mistake. You didn't choose your parents. You don't get to choose your parents. But can you believe that God did choose your parents? Can you believe that God giving you the parents he gave you was not his first mistake? The phrase comes up at this church from time to time. God doesn't waste trouble on us. Can you believe that as it relates to your parents, Christian? That God didn't say, oops, the minute that you were born? How did he get into that family? That's not what I intended. Perhaps you have been put into a a challenging home, a challenging family. Perhaps you have it harder than others as it relates to obeying your parents or honoring your parents. And it wasn't your choice. And that's not easy. And I'm not trying to pretend that it is. But you do get to choose what you do with it. 
There are many people who face adversity in this life. There are many people who are heaving under the weight of things that they did not choose. People don't choose to get sick. And yet there are people in this room and all around us who are living in the constant state of dealing with the fact that they are not well. They didn't choose that. They wouldn't choose that. People don't choose to have their government declare war on some other nation and be drawn into a battle where they're going to be giving their lives in order to pad the ego of someone that, 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 that's at the top, in order to, to gain, to, to, to pad their pocketbooks or to, to, to conquer more land so that they can build a monument to their self. They don't, they don't choose to become a part of that, but, but they're a part of it nonetheless. People don't choose to have a famine or a drought. People don't choose to put themselves in the path of a natural disaster that's going to uproot their lives and totally and fundamentally change the way that they have to live. People don't choose any of that. We don't get to choose many of the circumstances that we face in our lives, including our family. But you know what we do get to choose? We get to choose how we respond to it. You cannot change the circumstances that you have been put in. You cannot change how people treat you per se, but you can always affect how you respond to it. You do get to choose your disposition and your attitude toward that thing. And in this, our point broadens well beyond the family, doesn't it? Christian, things are not perfect in your life. They're not perfect in mine. They're not perfect in yours. The way things have gone is perhaps not the way you would have chosen them to go. Be that authority, illness, circumstance, whatever it might be. You don't have the power to choose those circumstances. But can you trust that your circumstance was not God's first mistake? And then trust God through it. Children, this is true of your parents as well. You didn't choose their personalities. You didn't choose their style of parenting. You might be able to influence some of those things through respectful appeal. We're going to talk about that next week when we ask the question, what happens when things go wrong in family? But for many of these things, the choice is simply not yours to make. But what you can choose is how you act and react toward your parents in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. What you can do is you can recognize that the manner in which you dispose yourself toward your parents is not about your parents. It's about you and God. It's about authority, God's authority. It's about obedience to God. It's about your love for God. And that brings us to our second point. Point number two. Your obedience and honor are about God, not about your parents. Once again, this point broadens out well beyond children to every interaction with authority. Be that our government, which is godless and hedonistic and vindictive against righteousness. Be that your employer, who maybe is not treating you well, who is taking advantage of you. Or your pastor who maybe isn't listening to you or helping you as you feel you need to be helped or personally simply rubs you the wrong way. Or your husband 
who is maybe being selfish and not loving you as he ought. And of course, we speak of parents who maybe are missing it and you feel neglected, you feel forgotten, you feel as though they've got a favorite and that favorite isn't you, whatever it might be. Person under authority. That's who I'm talking to today. And that's everyone. Can you treat that authority not in light of their failures or their shortcomings, but rather in light of God's design? Submit, obey, honor, not because they deserve it, but because the God who designed this authority structure has asked you to. He deserves it. We've memorized this month Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. In this, we find Paul's command toward marriage and family in this regard. And I would like to read that passage to you. You'll be familiar with it, of course. And then I want to continue past verse 21 all the way to the end of the chapter. As we draw out Paul's application to his command there. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 25, the Bible says this, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, as to the Lord, excuse me, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. And there is no respect of persons. So the first five verses are Paul speaking to these authority relationships, right? Wives, submit. Husbands, love. Children, obey. Parents, provoke not. Servants, obey. And then actually, if we were to continue one more verse to Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, we'd see masters do right by your, by, by your servants. But it's in verses 23 through 25 where Paul highlights the principle. Let me read it to you again. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. The fundamental motivation by which you perform the role, your role in a relationship, is not the other person in the relationship, Christian but the God who ordained it to begin with. Wife, it is a wonderful thing if your husband is a good husband and so makes submission easy. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it, it's designed to be. But that your husband is a good husband is not a requirement for you to do your part. You don't submit for your husband's sake. You submit for the Lord's sake. Husband, it is a wonderful thing if your wife is a good wife and so makes loving her easy. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it's designed to be. But your wife being a good wife is not a requirement for you to love her. You don't love her for her sake. You love her for God's sake. 
Whatsoever you do, do it heartily. Parent, it is a wonderful thing if your children are easy and compliant and spiritually sensitive. That's the way we would desire it to be. But your children being good children is not a requirement in order for you to chasten them properly. You chasten them for the Lord's sake. Children, it's a wonderful thing. If your parents are good, godly, stable, and well-adjusted parents, that's the way it ought to be. That's God's design. But you having good parents is not a requirement for you to obey and to honor them. You obey and honor them for God's sake. Knowing that in doing so, whatever you do, and this is the principle, whatever you do, you do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. Every decision you make, you identify it as unto the Lord. If you can do that thing as unto the Lord, then you can do it. If you cannot do it as unto the Lord, then you have no business doing it. When you are obeying your authority, honoring your authority, you are doing so in obedience to God. And as I've said, the moment that your authority asks you to do something that you cannot do as unto the Lord, then you stop obeying man and you continue obeying God because your perspective, your foundation is whatever I do, I'm going to do it heartily with every ounce of my being as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Submit as unto the Lord and not unto men. And knowing and doing so, here's the thing again. You will receive the reward. What is that reward? Well, we've talked about some of it. But really, does it matter? You want it. You want it, don't you? You want that reward and you know how to get it. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, and that reward is yours. Knowing as well, by way of warning, that if you disregard authority, you will receive the wrong that is done. Because there's no respect of persons. So, children, how are you doing today? First, for those still under their parents' authority, are you obeying them? Not for their sake, but for God's sake. Don't miss out on this simple and direct opportunity to obey God by obeying parents. Every week, I, I'm sit, I sit down with people and they say, Pastor, I, just, I really don't know what God wants from me. I don't know His will. I don't know His direction. I don't know what I ought to do. And there are those things in life, right? We come to things and we say, I don't know what I should be doing next. I don't exactly know what's right for me. And we're searching the scriptures and we're praying and we're waiting. And they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And we're doing all of those things. And, and, and that time of waiting is miserable and is difficult. Difficult. You say, I'm committed to doing what God wants me to do as soon as he lets me know how to do it. And there are those things in life. But you know what? This isn't one of them. This one is here. It is here. It is for you. You know how to do it. You don't have to spend time praying about it. You don't have to learn the Greek and study what it means. Children, obey your parents. It is there. You know he wants it. You know it's his will. All you have to do is take it and receive the reward of it. Not for their sake, for God's sake. Are you doing that today, child? And maybe today you say, you know what, Pastor? No, I'm not doing that. Well, would you do this in response then? When we're done here, would you talk to God? Would you confess that? Would you acknowledge that you have not been an obedient child, both to him and to your parents? And then would you talk to your parents? Would you confess it to them? Would you tell them that you've not been an obedient child? Would you ask their forgiveness 
And then would you, for God's sake, make a point of obeying them in the Lord? For this is right. For those of any age, children of every age, are you honoring your parents? Not for their sake, but for God's sake. Once again, perhaps you say, you know what, Pastor, I haven't. Well, would you do the same? Would you confess it to God? Confess it to your parents? Make those relationships right? And start honoring your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. And to this point, maybe you say, Pastor, it's just not that simple for me. Maybe there are complications for some of the adults in this room by which you struggle with the command to honor your parents. We talked about that a little bit. They're not worthy. They, 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 but, but, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's they're toxic. You say, Pastor, do I really have to re-engage in a relationship with them? It's really bad for me when I re-engage in a relationship with them. They are toxic people. Every time I'm around them, it tears me down. It destroys me. I don't want them around my kids. All of these things, do I really have to do that? And I understand that. Now, there, you can honor your parents. You can draw lines whereby you are able to honor your parents while simultaneously protecting yourself against the deeper problems that might incur in said relationships. And that might be necessary. And maybe it is. This is, again, this isn't a one-size-fits-all type idea. You know, everyone's not going to be hunky, hunky-dory in your relationships just because you do this thing. Your parents are still going to be your parents if they don't love God, if they're not interested, if they're proud, if they're selfish, if whatever it might be. You might still have to leave up barriers, protections, and things in your life. Life. I'm not talking about that per se. And if you need help with those things, if you need direction, come and see me and we'll navigate those things. We'll navigate them together. But the principle still stands. Your parents can be a thousand miles away. You can have barriers of protection up. They can be dead and you can still today begin honoring them in the way you think about them, in the way that you treat them, giving them a phone call, sending them a birthday card, whatever it might be to show them that you honor them. And may we all, in whatever authority relationships we find ourselves in, dispose ourselves in a proper way toward those authorities. May we serve heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord we shall receive the reward of the inheritance because we aren't just serving an earthly authority. We are serving our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.